Well, as we come to the scriptures again this morning, let's ask the author of the scriptures to guide us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would bless us with your word this morning, refresh us, renew us, lift our eyes, and encourage us to put our hope again in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to this next section of text from Second Kings, as recorded for us in chapter 3, which was read earlier this morning, I want you to note that the events form something of a contrast to what we have already covered on the unfolding ministry of Elisha. And just to make that a bit clearer for you, perhaps I should remind you that so far we've seen Elisha receive the call to serve as prophet from Elijah, then receive an endowment of the Spirit of God to fit him for the task, and then see him perform his first miracle, which brought much blessing, then face some early opposition, which led to some rather severe judgment. And then this incident before us in chapter 3. And the contrast that I'm referring to between what we've seen and what happens now is this. For a start, the verses allocated to the first few events in the life of Elisha, the healing of the waters and the judgment on the rebels, have been pretty short in length and were issues that were brought to Elisha's attention directly. While this one in chapter 3 is much longer and seems to have landed at Elisha's feet almost by coincidence. Because it's not until halfway through the text that anyone except a humble servant, realises that Elisha is even there, let alone can offer any help. Then we could also note that so far Elisha's ministry has reached those outside of the royal family in Israel. It's reached plebs like you and me, and to issues of local concern. But in chapter 3, the events concern his ministry to the kings and were of an interest to the nation, even the security and the welfare of the nation. Now, this is a pattern that we noted when we looked at the life of Elijah last year. We can readily trace how God sent Elijah to minister to the needs of the widow of Zarephath, revealing something of the Lord's compassion and interest in the individual. But we can also trace how Elisha's But we can also trace how Elijah's ministry extended to King Ahab and the whole nation, revealing something of the Lord's sovereign control of the affairs of all his people collectively. It's a good thing to keep in mind. Our God not only knows you and your needs and your cares, and he cares about these things, he also knows the needs of all God's people, let alone all the nations of the earth. Such is the God the scriptures proclaim to us, not distant, but still powerful, and yet one who notices even the sparrow that falls. Well, that brings us to chapter 3, and these three points may make the scene a little clearer for us and help us get our feet wet in the events that took place. First notice in verses 1 to 9, the desperate situation facing three kings, 
The first two kings that are dealt with in the chapter are the king of Israel, Joram, and the king of Judah, Jehoshaphat. Joram was the son of Ahab, who had been that wicked ruler during Elijah's time. Ahab had died, but Joram continued in the idolatrous ways of his father. Jehoshaphat was the king of Judah, to the south, and he can be spoken of in a general way as being a godly king. Godly, but in some cases, and especially in this case, sadly misguided. The political situation that was caused by Ahab's death was relatively simple. The king of the nearby kingdom of Moab took the opportunity to cut the payments that his kingdom forwarded on to Ahab. It could be supposed that he figured that now was a good time as any to revolt against this financial burden, given that Israel were in a state of flux anyway with Ahab's death. But Joram, the new king of Israel, was not going to let go of that nice little source of income that quickly. Enlisting the help of King Jehoshaphat to the south, the two kings and their armies accompanying them went to war to bring those nasty rebellious Moabites under control. Why Jehoshaphat would ever offer to be an ally to Joram is a question that the text doesn't answer. But either way, the plan of attack upon Moab was left to Joram to draw up. And wisely or not, he decided that they should detour through the other neighbouring country of Edom to launch their attack on Moab. It could have been that the king thought that this was Moab's least protected side, or it may have been that by going through Edom, he thought they could get the help of the king of Edom and his army. Either way, the plan was approved, and the two kings of Israel and Judah were soon accompanied by the king of Edom to become the wee three kings. And they all set out into the desert for seven days' journey toward Moab. But all that came to a swift dead end when they discovered, sadly, that their water supplies were down to zero. Not a single drop to drink. This was, to say the least, a very serious situation. Not only were they without water and thus in danger of literally dying of thirst, they were also now sitting ducks for the army of Moab. To say the situation was desperate is putting it mildly. They were in dire straits. This was make or break. Do or die. More than likely die. But second, we note in verses 10 to 15, the important question asked by one king. While Joram thought nothing more than himself and his own impending death, Jehoshaphat decided it was a good idea to seek the Lord's help. At least this redeeming feature of Jehoshaphat is noted that he at least had the sense to look to the Lord even if only in this small way and as a last resort. Jehoshaphat was a believer in the Lord, even though he made foolish alliances at times. Refusing to accept Jehoram's assessment, he asked that question in verse 11, Isn't there a prophet of the Lord here, that we may inquire of the Lord by him? Now before you ask, why didn't he think of that before? Ask yourself why you don't always think of it first either. 
Good point. Now to the king's question, a nameless servant replied, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. So let me draw out of this some characteristics that can be seen in Elisha that would be greatly desirable to have in our lives at any time or even when people around us are looking for answers. See here that Elisha was known as someone who had shown himself to be a man of God. It's interesting here that this nameless servant could point out Elisha when the king couldn't. I wonder sometimes if people look at us and point us out as men and women of God in the midst of a crowd. To reach that standard, your lives need to be consistently governed by the word of God, by the wisdom of God. There's a lot of human wisdom floating around, but when people get desperate for answers, they don't want the latest theory. They want something that works, that's true. And the challenge before us is to develop the reputation of living your life by God's word. People must see that consistently in your life so they know you are someone who knows God's truth. Then, we could say of Elisha, he was known as someone who had shown himself to be a faithful servant. It's significant that the king's servant identified Elisha as the one who used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. Elisha left behind a prominent and financially secure position with his family to be a servant for ten years or more to Elijah and became known as the man who poured water for Elijah. That is to say that Elisha served Elijah in simple and humble ways. It's possible there were times when Elisha literally helped Elijah wash his hands. Perhaps it was time to eat and Elijah needed to clean his hands. The younger prophet Elisha might have held the pitcher of water and poured it over the hands of his mentor. This probably happened, but we can also understand that this was a phrase used to describe the humble and simple way Elisha served his spiritual father. Jesus came as a humble servant, and that is the attitude God's people must have. Are you a servant? God honours and uses people who are servants. Then, what else we could say of Elisha is this. He was known as someone who was unaffected by flattery. Here standing before Elisha are three kings. It's not every day that three kings come crawling up to you asking for your advice. Elisha was unmoved by it all. He had been in the presence of God, so he's not impressed by the persona of men, nor a man prone toward partiality for even a moment. I fear for some of the well-known preachers and musicians and Christian leaders of our day. Since we turn them into celebrities, it's a temptation for them to think more highly of themselves than they ought. We don't find this with Elisha. His allegiance was to the Lord and to the principles of his word, and they were strong regardless of the company he was in. Elisha knew well that the whole thing reeked of hypocrisy. He looked straight at the king of Israel and asked, What do we have to do with each other? Go to the prophets of your father and your mother. The reply was rather cutting, to say the least. Joram's father and mother had been among Israel's worst ever king and queen in terms of godliness, 
and faithfulness to the Lord. And now here was Joram humbling himself, perhaps even groveling before the prophet of the Lord. What would his mother have thought? After all, she promised to kill Elijah. And now here was her son groveling before Elijah's successor. And then Elisha was also known as someone who is sensitive to the leading of God. I think there's an element of righteous indignation here with Elisha, and rather than speaking the first thing on his mind or what he would like to speak, he took time to quieten his heart before the Lord in order to hear clearly what the Lord wanted him to say. He desired to be sensitive to God's Spirit speaking to him and then through him. How quick we are to speak. Some of the most unproductive and many times damaging words in the human language begin with, I think, I've no doubt if it is needed, the Lord will give us what we need to say on the spot, but let's be slow to speak our opinions and instead hear from the Spirit of God in the Word of God before we speak. Then, only then, can we declare the Word of God, which Elisha then proceeded to do. Then third, in verses 16 to 27, note the clever plan devised by the true king. In Elisha's instructions, we see a beautiful dovetailing of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. The Lord would provide for their needs, but the kings and the armies had to do something in order to receive that provision. Victory would be theirs if they were obedient to what the prophet told them. This would demonstrate their dependence on the Lord a change from their former self-dependence which had already failed them and brought them to such a position. And here we have to stop and consider something. The ESV says at this point, Thus says the Lord, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. Whereas the New King James says, Thus says the Lord, Make this valley full of ditches. Now one seems to suggest that the miracle would all be of God's doing, while the other suggests that was also the case, but that the armies ought to prepare for this flow of water by going out and digging ditches, almost blindly, you could say. And if I take up that latter translation, then the plan of attack did not involve fighting, but digging. Not wielding swords, but shovels. Not tearing down fortresses, but digging ditches. And these ditches would be used by God to give the kings victory over Moab. Now don't let the apparent ridiculousness of this thought just go past without a thought. I mean, here are these kings and their armies who have travelled hard for seven days, hot and tired, out of water, basically given up, resigned to defeat, and the prophet Elisha tells them to start digging ditches. Now, I suppose the kings could have said, well, Elisha, that just doesn't make a lot of sense. We just want our containers refilled with water. We don't want to dig ditches and make us more thirsty. Does this remind you of anything? What about God telling Joshua and his men to march around the city of Jericho seven times? What about God telling Moses to speak to a rock? and water would come from it? What about God telling Moses to lift his rod to see the sea part? 
What about God telling Noah to build a huge boat inland? Or God telling Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, the heir of the promise? Here was one of those moments when God's plan seemed completely ridiculous. Think of Peter trying to talk Jesus out of the cross. You die on a cross? No way, that's not for you. But it was. And so is God's command here, no matter how illogical it sounded. It had to be followed. And so they dug and dug and dug. And God fulfilled his promise when water came flowing across the ground through the desert and gave the armies of Israel and Judah a twofold benefit. On the one hand, this miraculous supply of water saved the men and the animals from dying of thirst, which was good, of course. Yet on the other hand, this supply of water became the catalyst for victory over the Moabite army, who looked out at the armies in the desert and thought they were seeing great pools of blood and launched an attack, thinking that the three armies had already begun to slaughter each other. But they were wrong. They were very wrong. And the waiting armies of Israel, Judah and Edom prevailed over the army of Moab. So what do we make of all this? How does it apply to us? Well, before we leave this text, let's go back and note one small detail that Elisha declared about the Lord in verse 18. He said, This is a light thing in the eyes of the Lord. The kings had all but given up. The armies of Israel, Judah and Edom facing an impossible situation. Nothing they could do would fix it. They were all facing death. But that which was impossible for them to fix was a light thing in the eyes of the Lord to remedy. Don't skip over that. It requires little effort on God's part to change that which is unchangeable and fix that which is unfixable. Think on these. It was a light thing in the eyes of the Lord to create the heavens and the earth. It was a light thing in the eyes of the Lord to provide for three million people in a desert for 40 years. It was a light thing in the eyes of the Lord to deliver Israel time and time again against powerful enemies. It was a light thing in the eyes of the Lord to cause a virgin to become pregnant with the Saviour. It was a light thing in the eyes of the Lord to raise that Saviour from the dead. It will be a light thing in the eyes of the Lord to completely defeat Satan and his hosts. It will be a light thing in the eyes of the Lord to create a new heavens and a new earth. Let your mind consider the possibilities which are contained in the words of verse 18. It is a light thing in the eyes of the Lord to take care of you and to provide for you, to pour out his grace upon you. And whatever situation you face today, whatever is on your heart, whatever person is on your heart, It's a light thing for the Lord to deal with or to reach them and to turn them around. He is not baffled, stumped, frustrated or held by red tape. It requires no emergency meeting of the Godhead. He is the God who has the power to change that which is unchangeable. We read this this morning from Ephesians 3. Did you note that Paul prayed, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. 
There is no situation which requires more effort for God than any other situation, but in all our situations, he commands our trust and obedience. Now, while this is true, on the other side of the coin, we must acknowledge that we allow impressive displays by the enemy to turn us back from trusting the Lord for complete victory. And we see that in the conclusion of this story, which holds out a warning to us. There is a danger in getting our eyes off the Lord and his power to do the impossible by setting our eyes on seemingly powerful displays by the enemy, which are destined to keep us from putting our eyes on the Lord. See, the chapter finishes in verses 21 to 27, telling us how the Moabite king sacrificed his firstborn son and released a backlash of fury against the Israelites that was so intense that it caused them to retreat and kept them from complete victory. We see the same principle at work in our situation many times. The devil won't be content to allow us to see God's power at work without trying to deceive and dissuade us. He'll not be content with us taking God at his word, digging ditches, breaking up the hardened ground, studying the word of God and praying that his blessings might fill these ditches. He'll not be content with us setting forth each day, trusting in his word, being living witnesses to his grace and mercy. He'll not be content with us speaking and acting as if God holds the key to all of our needs. He'll fight back. He'll try to dissuade us and deceive us and bully us to keep quiet. But remember, if it was a light thing for the Lord to do the impossible for three kings who had no real claim upon him, how much more will he come to the aid of his own who cry out to him in prayer and who set about to dig their daily ditch and wait in faith for him to fill it up to overflowing? Are you ready for that? Is your goal that you might be one of those who not only trust him for the light and easy things, but also trust him for the harder and greater things? Not harder for God, of course. Nothing is too hard for him. But harder for us to conceive. It was John Newton who wrote these lines that we've sung before, but how true they are for us to reflect upon this morning as we close. Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. Will you take that to heart? Will you seek his way above all things? Will you dig those ditches and pray that he might fill them? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come to you this morning, we're thankful how you came to the aid of your people through your servant, Elisha, how you challenged those kings whom you brought into his presence to see the reality of the need that they had to bring their plans before you and to trust you to do what could not be done, what was impossible in terms of human thinking. Thank you that you have done the impossible for us. You've turned us around. You've revealed your grace to us and made us new creatures in Christ. Now teach us also to walk by faith, 
more by faith, less by sight. Teach us your way, O Lord. Teach us your way. Grant us your blessing today and enable us to dig and to trust that you will fill because you are the God who supplies. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.